footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening, and welcome to your nightmares, where we like to keep it dark and dreamy here at Dark Softly Tales. This is your host, Mav. We have come to the finale of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and what a trek it's been. For those who are listening to the story for the first time, I really hope you enjoyed it. And for those who are revisiting the story, I hope you found some value in the story that perhaps you didn't see before. I can't help but think, in this very time and age, the lessons in humanity that the story represents is more important than ever before. It's important to think for ourselves and see the humanity in the other person, no matter how the shadow represents. I have made these intros in advance, so at this point here in April, I'm not sure if I'll be doing the Dark Softly Bites summer series again this year or not, but tune in next week and we'll be here one way or the other. No worries, there's nothing to be afraid of, is there? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Narrated by Mav Sky. Chapter 10. Part 3 Henry Jekyll's Full Statement of the Case There comes an end to all things. The most capacious measure is filled at last, and this brief condensation to my evil finally destroyed the balance of my soul. And yet I was not alarmed. The fall seemed natural like a return to the old days before I had made my discovery. It was a fine, clear, January day, wet underfoot where the frost had melted, but cloudless overhead, and the Regent's Park was full of winter, chirruping and sweet with spring odors. I sat in the sun on a bench, the animal within me licking the chops of memory, the spiritual side a little drowsed, promising subsequent penitence, but not yet moved to begin. After all, I reflected, I was like my neighbors. And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my act of goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at the very moment of that vain, glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then, as in its turn, faintless subsided, I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I looked down, 
My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. A moment before, I had been safe of all men's respect, wealthy, beloved, the cloth laying for me in the dining room at home. And now I was the common quarry of mankind, hunted, houseless, a known murderer, thrall to the gallows. My reason wavered, but it did not fail me utterly. I have more than once observed that in my second character, my faculties seemed sharpened to a point, and my spirits more tensely elastic. Thus it came about that, where Jekyll perhaps might have succumbed, Hyde rose to the importance of the moment. My drugs were in one of the presses of my cabinet. How was I to reach them? That was the problem that, crushing my temples in my hands, I set myself to solve. The laboratory door I had closed. If I sought to enter by the house, my own servants would consign me to the gallows. I saw I must employ another hand, and thought of Lanyon. How was he to be reached? How persuaded? Supposing that I escaped capture in the streets, how was I to make my way into his presence? And how should I, an unknown and displeasing visitor, prevail on the famous physician to rifle the study of his colleague, Dr. Jekyll? Then I remembered that of my original character, one part remained to me. I could write my own hand. And once I had convinced that kindling spark, the way that I must follow became lighted up from end to end. Thereupon, I arranged my clothes as best as I could, and summoning a passing hansom, drove to an hotel in Portland Street, the name of which I chanced to remember. At my appearance, which was indeed comical enough, however tragic a fate these garments covered, the driver could not conceal his mirth. I gnashed my teeth upon him with a gust of devilish fury, and the smile withered from his face, happily for him, yet more happily for myself, for in another instant I had certainly dragged him from his perch. At the inn, as I entered, I looked about me with so black a countenance as made the attendants tremble. Not a look did they exchange in my presence, but took my orders, led me to a private room, and brought me wherewithal to write. Hide in danger of his life was a creature new to me, shaken with inordinate anger, strung to the pitch of murder, lusting to inflict pain. Yet the creature was astute, mastered his fury with the great effort of the will, composed his two important letters, one to Lanyon and one to Poole, and that he might receive actual evidence of their being posted, sent them out with directions that they should be registered. Thenceforward, he sat all day over the fire in the private room, gnawing his nails. And there he dined, sitting alone with his fears, the waiter visibly quailing before his eye. And thence, when night was fully come, he set forth in the corner of a closed cab and was driven to and fro about the streets of the city. He, I say, I cannot say I, 
That child of hell had nothing human. Nothing lived in him but fear and hatred. And when at last, thinking the driver had begun to grow suspicious, he discharged the cab and ventured on foot, attired in his misfitting clothes, an object marked out for observation. Into the midst of the nocturnal passengers, these two base passions raged within him like a tempest. He walked fast, hunted by his fears, chattering to himself, skulking through the less frequented thoroughfares, counting the minutes that still divided him from midnight. Once, a woman spoke to him, offering, I think, a box of lights. He smote her in the face, and she fled. When I came to myself at Lanyon's, the horror of my old friend perhaps affected me somewhat. I do not know. It was at least but a drop in the sea to the abhorrence which I look back upon these hours. A change had come over me. It was no longer the fear of the gallows. It was the horror of being Hyde that racked me. I received Lanyon's condemnation partly in a dream. It was partly in a dream that I came home to my own house and got into bed. I slept after the prostration of that day with a stringent and profound slumber which not even the nightmares that wrung me could avail to break. I awoke in the morning shaken, weakened, but refreshed. I still hated and feared the thought of the brute that slept within me, and I had not, of course, forgotten the appalling dangers of the day before. But I was more at home, in my own house and close to my drugs, and gratitude for my escape shone so strong in my soul that it almost rivaled the brightness of hope. I was stepping leisurely across the court after breakfast, drinking the chill of the air with pleasure, when I was seized again with those indescribable sensations that heralded the change, and I had but the time to gain the shelter of my cabinet before I was once again raging and freezing within the passions of Hyde. It took on this occasion a double dose to recall me to myself, and alas, six hours after, as I sat looking sadly in the fire, the pangs returned, and the drug had to be re-administered. In short, from that day forth, it seemed only by a great effort as of gymnastics, and only under the immediate stimulation of the drug, that I was able to wear the countenance of Jekyll. At all hours of the day and night, I would be taken with a premonitory shudder. Above all, if I slept, or even dozed for a moment in my chair, it was always as Hyde that I awakened. Under the strain of this continually impending doom, and by the sleeplessness to which I now condemned myself, I, even beyond what I had thought possible to man, I became, in my own person, a creature eaten up and emptied by fever, languidly weak both in body and mind and solely occupied by one thought, the horror of my other self. But when I slept, or when the virtue of the medicine wore off, but when I slept, or when the virtue of the medicine wore off, I would leap almost without transition, for the pangs of transformation grew daily less marked 
into the possession of a fancy brimming with images of terror, a soul boiling with causeless hatreds, and a body that seems not strong enough to contain the raging energies of life. The powers of Hyde seem to have grown with the sickliness of Jekyll, and certainly the hate that now divided them was equal on each side. With Jekyll, it was a thing of vital instinct. He had now seen the full deformity of that creature that shared with him some of the phenomena of consciousness, and was co-heir with him to death. And beyond these links of community, which in themselves made the most poignant part of his distress, he thought of Hyde for all his energy of life, as of something not only hellish, but inorganic. This was the shocking thing, that the slime of the pit seemed to utter cries and voices, that the amphorous dust gesculated and sinned, that what was dead and had no shape should usurp the offices of life. And this again, that that insurgent horror was knit to him closer than a wife, closer than an eye, lay caged in his flesh to where he heard it mutter and felt it struggle to be born. And at every hour of weakness and in the confidence of slumber prevailed against him and deposed him of life. The hatred of Hyde for Jekyll was of a different order. His terror of the gallows drove him continually to commit temporary suicide and return to a subordinate station of a part instead of a person. But he loathed the necessity. He loathed the despondency into which Jekyll was now fallen, and he scented the dislike with which he was himself regarded. Hence, the ape-like tricks that he would play me, scrawling in my own hand blasphemies on the pages of my books, burning the letters and destroying the portrait of my father. And indeed, had it not been for his fear of death, he would not long ago have ruined himself in order to involve me in the ruin. But his love of life is wonderful. I go further. I, who sicken and freeze at the mere thought of him, when I recall the objection and passion of this attachment, and when I know how he fears my power to cut him off by suicide, I find it in my heart to pity him. It is useless, and the time awfully fails me to prolong this description. No one has ever suffered such torments. Let that suffice. And yet even to these, habit brought, no, not alleviation, but a certain callousness of soul, a certain acquiescence of despair. And my punishment might have gone on for years, but for the last calamity which has now fallen, and which has finally severed me from my own face and nature. My provision of the salt, which had never been renewed since the date of my first experiment, began to run low. I sent out for a fresh supply and mixed the drought. The ebullition followed, and the first change of color, not the second. I drank it, and it was without efficiency. You will learn from Poole how I have had London ransacked. It was in vain. And I am now persuaded that my first supply was impure, and that it was that 
unknown impurity, which lent efficiency to the drought. About a week has passed, and I am now finishing the statement under the influence of the last of the old powders. This, then, is the last time, short of a miracle, that Henry Jekyll can think his own thoughts or see his own face, now how sadly altered, in the glass. Nor must I delay too long to bring my writing to an end, for if my narrative has escaped destruction, it has been by a combination of great prudence and great good luck. Should the throes of change take me in the act of writing it, Hyde will tear it to pieces. But if some time shall have elapsed after I have laid it by, his wonderful selfishness and circumscription to the moment will probably save it once again from the action of his ape-like spite. And indeed the doom that is closing on us both has already changed and crushed him. Half an hour from now, when I shall again and forever re-undo that hated personality, I know how I shall sit shuddering and weeping in my chair, or continue, with the most strained and fear-struck ecstasy of listening, to pace up and down this room, my last earthly refuge, and give ear to every sound of menace. Will Hyde die upon the scaffold? Or will he find courage to release himself at the last moment? God knows. I am careless. This is my true hour of death. And what is the follow concerns another than myself? Here then, as I lay down the pen and proceed to seal up my confession, I bring the life of that unhappy Henry Jekyll to an end. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mav Sky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mav Sky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and, of course, her brand new release, Cold Hangs the Midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today. <laughs>